bone and sickle. Bleeding saints and forest witches, the past unburied, the books unsealed, the old celebration returning. Hello, and welcome to my study, where we're hosting a sort of virtual Halloween party. This is your host, Al Reidenauer, assisted as always by the housekeeper of this estate and co-host of this show, Mrs. Carswell. Hello! Happy Halloween! Yes, happy Halloween. Tonight we'll be recreating, or uh, discussing at least, what a Halloween party of the 1920s or 30s would have been like using... Um, some of the publications of the period, old newspapers and magazine from our uh, periodical collections. Do you want to do an owl update before we start? Oh, we should. Uh, so, the latest. Uh, Strix has disappeared again. Just for the last two nights. She'd been sleeping in the solarium and then coming in the house at night. But she hasn't been inside for two nights. And wasn't in the solarium. We're still trying to figure it all out. And there are different ways of understanding it. Uh, different explanations, reactions, uh, revelations. It's really just The point a... is, we're free of Sorry. that distraction for now and can record this show, which we are calling Episode 121, An Old-Fashioned Halloween Party. So, to uh, set the stage, uh, we have the study here decorated with uh, old-fashioned streamers and the uh, old-fashioned bicycle decorations, those uh, jointed uh, cutout figures, uh, the witches and jack-o'-lanterns, black cats, the classics. I did have a few of the originals, but they've gotten a little fragile to hang, so... These are reproductions, but they're still made in Shippensburg, Pennsylvania, like they were in the 1920s. And very cute and old-fashioned. And we even have a bistel tablecloth on the table, which Mrs. Carswell has provided with some uh, holiday fare. I made my honey spice cookie recipe again, with honey from the hives, of course. But I also made a couple items from the old 30s recipes, just to dry them out. And we have cider. And punch. Yes, Mr. Reidenauer has made his special punch instead of the cider. And the fireplace is flickering with eerie green and blue flames. Oh, yes! Oh, it's really something! I, I got the idea from another old newspaper article. Uh, it's copper sulfate for blue, borax for green, as well as alum. Uh, something used for pickling, and the borax is for laundry soap. They're all pretty easy to find, but I'm almost already out. Mr. Ridenauer has been playing wizard all evening, throwing in handfuls. It... It's starting to smell a little strange in here. I opened the windows. Meanwhile, I was looking through the old recipes for items to choose which to make and highlight some of the stranger items. Uh, do you have those Halloween menus they suggested? 
Yes, let's start there. Here's the one from the 1932 Miami Herald. Salad in pumpkin shell, pumpkin biscuits, gherkin pickles, uh, orange ice or ice cream in pumpkin colored paper cups. Halloween punch. There you go, punch. Mm, yes, the punch. Or for a more casual party, cheese hobgoblins, donuts, sweet cider. Uh, two each his own, but uh, what are cheese hobgoblins? I'll get to that. And from a party planning article from the Massachusetts newspaper from 1935. The Halloween buffet. Black cat canopies, jack-o'-lantern squares, ripe olives, celery hearts, witches spiced shortcake, coffee. Or there's the Halloween dinner, jack-o'-lantern salad, mystery hash, hot rolls, sweet pickles, broomstick pudding, Witch's Cauldron. And uh, so the cheese hobgoblins? It's basically a Welsh rarebit. Oh, well, melted cheese is good. Yes. And it mentions cutting up olives or pimentos to add faces or make the features. And, and uh, black cat canapes? Those are weird. Let me see. Um, here. Spread oblong pieces of toast sparingly with onion and butter flavor butter with onion juice drain one can of mustard sardines sardines packed in mustard sauce and split down the center removing backbone but being careful not to break the sardines sounds more like something the cat would eat the black cat I think some of the cakes and cookies or desserts with orange frosting or gelatin might make more sense to us today as Party food, more like snacks and with the orange color. But they needed dinner menus too. And for these, um, for these dinner parties, it's harder to come up with things. Here's a clipping from 1929 from the News Sun from Springfield, Ohio. Halloween not complete unless even food follows out the theme of the season. Not only must the decorations and appointments of a Halloween party provide the Halloween atmosphere, but the food must coincide as well. Dishes should suit the occasion and should be decked out with fittingly gruesome names. Even though the dishes are something which you serve often and at any time of the year, and if they have other name, for the Halloween occasion, tabulate them with such names as Mystery Cake, Devil's Stew, Witch's Ham, or Halloween Potatoes, all of which will make them more interesting. Uh, Halloween Potatoes is a hard sell, but I'm curious about the Devil's Stew. Ew, yes, that one. It starts with a long description of basically making a white sauce and then... Um, let's see. Uh, add the contents of an 11-ounce can of peas, which have been simmered three minutes in their own juice. 
bring the contents of an 8-ounce can of oysters to scalding in their juice and add. Season with 2 tablespoons of butter, salt, and pepper, and serve. Mmm, peas and oysters. Hmm. Yes, I guess the devil likes them. Mm, he likes spicy things, I would say. I uh, guess there wasn't any spicy food back then. Not so much. There's also a recipe. Uh, here. Goblin sandwich. It's from the Atlantic Journal, 1941. Let's see. First, it, it has you toast some nuts, but doesn't say which kind. Toast about 15 minutes. Then roll fine with your rolling pin. Add the deviled ham and the pulp of the pear. Season highly with the Worcestershire sauce to taste. Split the donuts through the center, spread the lower half with the filling, and cover with second half. Worcestershire flavored donuts. Mm, gobliny. Mm, yes, gobliny. Uh, there's a lot of emphasis on donuts for Halloween back then. They talk about giving freshly made donuts and cider to trick-or-treaters and making little men out of donuts as table decorations. And there are ads taken out by bakeries saying, order your Halloween donuts in advance. Seems like it was a thing all the way into the 1960s. Uh, uh-huh. And and sometimes we'll see that connected to uh, soul cakes, the uh, All Souls Day tradition, which uh, little cakes like cookies or sweet biscuits are collected door to door. Oh, here it is. From 1935, a serving suggestion. If you have a new broom, wash the handle and place the donuts on it. Pass them to your guests that way. Dressed as a witch, of course. Oh, that's funny. They do that in the German carnival, too. They put donuts on spindles to hand out. And speaking of witches and serving suggestions, this one is from um, the Boston Globe, 1917. It will be quite in keeping with the uncanniness of the evening to have the sandwiches served by sand witches marching solemnly around the room. The sandwiches are dressed in white with yellow kerchiefs and black and yellow witches' caps, about two feet tall, made of paper. Solemnly. <laughs> Solemn sandwiches. <laughs> well, we don't have donuts or witch waitresses, but uh, what are these? Uh, these two recipes on the table, and I'm presuming we have to eat them? You said you were going to. Yeah, I, I think I'm going to need more punch first. Um, you can uh, tell everybody about them while I refresh my glass. The first one the name describes pretty well. It's called Mystery Salad, and comes from that same Massachusetts paper from 1935, the North Adams Transcript. Okay, I think I'm ready. Uh... Uh, I'm not sure what I'm looking at. Lots of creamy stuff on lettuce. The ingredients are lettuce, bananas, grated cheese, mayonnaise, a few drops of beet juice. But uh, then there's something that looks like, well, I better not say. Let's just say hot dogs. Here's the prep. Slice bananas once lengthwise. Dip or roll in finely grated cheese until thoroughly coated. Wet a piece of white paper slightly with beet juice. Carefully roll the banana slices onto this to color. Arrange on lettuce leaves and pass mayonnaise. Well, I've never heard wet paper in a recipe before. Uh, 
Okay, uh, now we each take a bite. I guess yeah. you might have some cream cheese with bananas, so... Yeah, it's... Uh, maybe? Uh, I can imagine my grandmother making that. Uh, what's the other one? It kind of looks the same. Maybe a little more mucilaginous? It does have gelatin. It's from a 1929 recipe, and I made it mainly because of the name. Here, have, have a fresh spoon. Okay, well, what is the name? Owl salad. <laughs> oh, I thought it would be fitting. Owl salad. Oh, well, uh, owl salad without the owl, I'm guessing? Oh, no. <laughs> no bird of any kind. Uh, nice for the vegetarians. Oh, you know, it's, it's mainly just gelatin and crushed pineapple and white grapes. Also, sugar, lemon juice, and ginger ale. That's it. There was this in the write-up, which... I thought it was peculiar. Uh, when cool, add remaining ingredients with a light sprinkling of salt and paprika. Turn into individual mold and chill. Serve on lettuce leaves with mayonnaise. Really? But what? there's the other... I guess it's just clumped up or something? Okay. Uh, down she goes. Yep. I guess I better just do this. Mm. It's sweet, sweet. No, it is sweet. I don't taste the salt or paprika. I I barely used any. But how do they get off calling this owl salad? I mean, what's what's owl about it? Oh, to be fair, I did leave something out, but I wanted to surprise you. It says decorate each serving with an owl cutout. Which I have right here. Ta-da! Oh, it's 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 Strix. Or... Oh, I didn't have a picture of Strix, but it's her breed, Great Horned Owl. Well, I... take it. It's yours. I already have one. You do? Yes. Take it. Take it. Okay. Well, thank you. Uh, so, did you have any other hearty food or comments? I'm glad you like it. I actually ate a lot of owl salad in the kitchen. It really grows on you. It's sugary, but then there's uh, like an undertaste. It's sweet, but I had your fireplace smell interfering with things. I brought a bowl up to the attic so I could taste it better. I have another bowl up there free of smell. Could you, can you open another window? For fresh air, I'm feeling... I'm feeling just... Uh, I'll open a window. Uh, Let's take a break and we'll come back with our uh, games segment. The boogeyman is gone now. Games. Most every Halloween game played at parties before the 1950s was a sort of fortune-telling game. 
Fortune telling with cards lasted a bit longer, and there were a number of specially produced uh, fortune telling decks with a Halloween or witch spin produced in the 1930s and into the 1950s. Scrying games using mirrors or reflections in water were also played. And most all of these customs were practiced by young, unmarried people, as the intent behind them was to determine something about one's future spouse. In Britain, a custom involving nuts led to the holiday being called, in some places, Nutcrack Night. Uh, nuts were placed in the fireplace and imagined as representing loves or potential lovers. For instance, if two nuts christened with a man and woman's name were placed together on the grate but popped and jumped apart as they heated, infidelity was in the cards. But if they burned with a steady, bright flame, that was a good omen. Uh, John Gay, the poet and dramatist who wrote the Beggar's Opera, described the custom in a book of poems on rustic life. Two hazelnuts I threw into the flame, and to each nut I gave a sweetheart's name. This, with the loudest bounce, me sore amazed, that in a flame of brightest color blazed. As blazed the nut, so may thy passion grow, for twas thy nut that did so brightly glow. Information on one's future spouse was also sought by pouring melted lead into a dish of cold water and examining the shapes formed for clues. I've mentioned this custom previously in the context of the Germanic Twelve-Night customs, the period between Christmas and Epiphany. It's a fortune-telling method going back to the Romans and found throughout Germanic cultures and all the way into southeastern Europe in Bulgaria and even Turkey. Even apple bobbing had a fortune-telling aspect. If you placed the apple plucked from the tub under your pillow, it was said you'd dream of your future sweetheart. Another apple custom called snap apple involved suspending treacle-coated apples from strings and trying to catch them in one's teeth. The apples would usually be set swinging before the game, so dodging sticky apples was also part of the fun. Uh, Mrs. Carswell has another odd game involving string and fruit from a uh, 1927 edition of Parties, a magazine of decorations, costumes, games, and refreshments. Cut a number of strings, each two yards long with a raisin, tied securely in the exact middle. There should be half the number that there are children. Standing in two lines with an end of the string in his mouth, each child must try to reach the raisin by chewing the string before his opposite can do so. Of course, the hands are not allowed to be used in any way. And an article from October 21st, 1917, from the Boston Globe suggests a number of other games. Uh, yes. Yes, I have it here. Pumpkin alphabet. Carve letters on pumpkins. Set pumpkin on table. Blindfold guests give each a hat pin and lead to pumpkin. The letter she or he sticks hat pin in will be the initial of his or her future wife or husband. Dough test. Make dough of water and meal. Write the names of men and women guests on small pieces of paper. Roll up and put in dough, then drop in water. First names to appear will be the first to become engaged. 
Meeting your fate. Have guests fill their mouths with water and walk around the house. The first person met will be his or her fate. Other games which furnish great amusement for your guests are going downstairs backward, looking in mirror, and trying to see in it the face of your future husband. Also, paring apples and throwing the peel over your head. The letter formed by the apple peel will be the initial of your future wife or husband. And a number of articles on party planning included、uh, this classic involving a circle of partygoers passing objects around in a pitch black room, so it all depended on touch.、Uh, the host is given a little script, which Mrs. Carswell will read, and I'll read the directions to the host, which go with it. It is the truth and not a myth that there once lived a man by the name of Smith. Alas, it was his bitter lot to murdered be quite near this spot. Now we have with us his remains. So first, I give to you his brains. Host passes to the person on the right a sponge dampened with ice water. Now next I pass, as you surmise, the murdered victim's mournful eyes. Passes two grapes from which the skins have been removed. His veins, through which blood flowed so red, are now all clammy, cold, and dead. Passes two or three long pieces of cooked macaroni. And now your shuddering touch reveals the teeth with which he ate his meals. Passes some dry kernels of corn. And next, your startled nerves prepare to touch the late lamented's hair. Passes corn silk. The ear with which he often heard also now harkens not a word. Passes a fig. His hand no longer yours can hold. Alas, it now in death is cold. Passes a kid glove filled with wet sand. Best of friends, it seems must part. This is a piece of his poor heart. Passes pieces of calf liver. He always spoke with warm goodwill, but now his tongue is cold and still. Passes raw oysters. And now his sheeted ghost in white is standing in our midst tonight. The ghost enters and stands in the center of the circle. Ere he departs with groans of pain, just list the rattling of his chain. Chains rattle as the ghost groans mournfully, concluding with an unearthly scream. Stories and poems. Often, a portion of the party would be dedicated to the reading of ghost stories or recitation of spooky poetry. For the latter, we have Mrs. Carswell reading. 
This poem by Joel Benton was published in Harper's Weekly on October 31st, 1896. Halloween. Pixie, Cobble, the Elf, and Sprite are on their rounds tonight. In the wan moon's silver ray thrives their helter-skelter play. Fond of cellar, barn, or stack, true unto the almanac. Cabbage stumps, straws wet with dew, apple skins and chestnuts too. And a mere foursome lass shows what wonders come to pass. Doors they move and gates they hide, mischief that on moonbeams ride. Don't we all of long ago by the ruddy fireplace glow? In the kitchen and the hall, these weird ghost-like pranks recall. Eerie shadows were they then, but tonight they come again. Were we once more but sixteen, precious would be Halloween. This one by David McCord comes from his 1952 book of poems for children, Far and Few, Rhymes of the Never Was and Always Is. It's called Mr. Macklin's Jack-o'-lantern. Mr. Macklin takes his knife and carves the yellow pumpkin face. Three holes bring eyes and nose to life. The mouth has thirteen teeth in place. Then Mr. Macklin, just for fun, transfers the corncob pipe from his rhyme mouth to Jack's and everyone dies laughing. Oh, what fun it is! Till Mr. Macklin draws the shade and lights the candle in Jack's skull. Then all the inside dark is made, all spooky and as horrible as Halloween and creepy crawl. The shadows on the tool house floor, with Jack's face dancing on the wall. Oh, Mr. Macklin, where's the door? And by the American poet Theodore Retke, a more modern poem from 1959, The Bat. By day the bat is cousin to the mouse. He likes the attic of an aging house. His fingers make a hat about his head. His pulse beat is so slow we think him dead. He loops in crazy figures half the night among the trees that face the corner light. But when he brushes up against a screen, we are afraid of what our eyes have seen. For something is amiss or out of place when mice with wings can wear a human face. Our next is a poem with an odd name. Antigonish. It's been suggested it's named after a town of that name in Nova Scotia, where ghost sightings were being reported at the time of its composition. It's by Hughes Mearns, who wrote it as part of an unproduced play, and it was later the basis for a popular song of 1939. Yesterday upon the stair, I met a man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. 
I wish, I wish he'd go away. When I came home last night at three, the man was waiting there for me. But when I looked around the hall, I couldn't see him there at all. Go away, go away, and don't you come back any more. Go away, go away, and please don't slam the door. Last night I saw upon the stair a little man who wasn't there. He wasn't there again today. Oh, how I wish he'd go away. Wish he'd go away. Wish he'd go away. And um, I will uh, finish off this section with a ghost story. I'll be reading for you a spooky Appalachian tale from the excellent volume, The Granny Curse and Other Ghosts and Legends from East Tennessee. All the traditional stories retold by authors Randy Russell and Jane Burnett. This one explains a Halloween legend-tripping tradition of the region. The Weeping Mausoleum. A marble mausoleum that weeps blood-red tears is one of the best-known ghost stories in Tennessee. The site of the ghost story, the Craig Mills family mausoleum in downtown Cleveland, that's Cleveland, Tennessee, the seat of Bradley County, is uh, prominently and easily visited. In the 1920s, when Catherine Truitt was a student at the Old Central Grammar School, she recalls that as many as 30 students at a time would visit the mausoleum in October during their lunch period. The mausoleum is an impressive stone structure in the Gothic style with a steeply pitched, multi-gabled roof, a dozen stone spires, and a central tower as tall as a three-story building. Polished marble columns guard the door. The building, located in the yard of St. Luke's Episcopal Church, was built more than 120 years ago of marble stone imported from Carrara, Italy. Inside the mausoleum are six shelves and a central stone sarcophagus sculpted by Fabia Cotta, a famous Italian artist. Inside the sarcophagus rests the body of Nina Craig Mills. The remains of deceased family members occupy four of the surrounding catacombs. Catherine Truitt's schoolmates in the 1920s believed if they walked a circle around the mausoleum seven times and then approached the entrance, the doors would fly open. The doors coming open to invite them in seemed especially likely in October, between the 18th and in particular on Halloween. Mrs. Truitt, an active member of St. Luke's Episcopal Church, conducted tours of the church and the mausoleum until very recently. She was a young and vibrant 85-year-old as this book was going to press. She reported that while many students circled the mausoleum seven times, no classmate she can recall was ever brave enough to walk up to the doors afterwards. It was at about this time that Red stains like trails of tears appeared on the outside of the white marble walls of the mausoleum. They remain today and cannot be washed away. The red tears are welded into the stones themselves. Some people believe the tears are those of Nina Craig Mills. 
Seven-year-old Nina found herself the only child of a wealthy couple in 1871 when she asked her parents if she could go to school. Her father, John Craig Mills, wouldn't hear of it. Expensive tutors came into the Craig Mills home to provide Nina with a far finer education than could ever be had by attending a public school. Because of this, Nina was without playmates. She wanted to invite other children to a party at her house on her birthday. Nina was told her birthday was too important a date not to spend it with her family. Her uncles brought her gifts. Her grandfather promised to take her for buggy ride. Nina was unhappy. She ignored her birthday gifts. She ate little and never smiled at her parents. Finally, her father gave in and said they would host a Halloween apple ducking party at their home and that invitations would be sent to the families of 12 Cleveland girls her own age. The seven-year-old was pleased. Having a party wasn't as good as getting to go to school, but it was a start. She could ask other girls about school, and they would tell her everything. Thirteen days before the big party, Dr. Gideon Thompson, Nina's grandfather, came by the house to give Nina the ride in his new buggy, he promised. Nina's mother, Adelia, wanted to go along. I think I should, Father Adelia said. Not today. Nina and her old granddad can handle this rig on our own. Nina's mother helped her into the sleek black buggy. The top pulled up against the chill of autumn weather. There in the seat was a fine china doll dressed in lace. Is it mine? Nina asked. You'll have to ask her yourself, Dr. Thompson laughed. Her name is Camelia. Nina took the doll into her arms and plopped onto the cushioned seat of her grandfather's new buggy. Hello, Camelia, Nina said. Will you be my friend? Of course she will, Dr. Thompson said. He had the buggy hitched to his finest horse. The buggy rolled away, and Nina's mother turned and walked slowly back to the house. She couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. A little later... When she heard the train whistle blow, her heart stopped beating. A shock went through her body, and Adelia didn't know why. Dr. Thompson wasn't paying attention to anything but making his granddaughter happy. Nina's grandfather had heard train whistles day in and day out, year after year, but he'd probably never heard one quite this close before. The train coming through Cleveland on October 18, 1871 smashed into his buggy, killing Nina instantly. A porcelain doll named Camellia was broken into tiny pieces. Nina's grandfather was thrown from the buggy on impact and miraculously survived the collision. He would have just as soon have died in the wreck. St. Luke's Episcopal Church takes up an entire block of downtown Cleveland. Like the Craig Mills Mausoleum, the church was constructed in a Gothic style and at the family's expense as a tribute to Nina. It is built predominantly of red brick and was completed in 1874. Donated by the Craig Mills, the church was consecrated on October 18th, the three-day anniversary of Nina's tragic death. Adelia Craig Mills 
widowed twice, was still alive in the 1920s. She visited Nina's mausoleum often. She would stand in the shade of the trees and remember a better time. Adelia watched the children from the nearby grammar school come to the churchyard on their lunch hours to play. She wished Nina could play with them. She wished it with all her heart. Nina Craigmills must have wished it too. It was children among these visiting grade school students who first noticed the mausoleum was weeping. Many are convinced that the blood-red tears belonged to Nina, silently crying from beyond death for the company of playmates she never knew in life. With that, we'll be wrapping up our little Halloween... Oh, wait, wait, wait. I thought you were up in the attic. I was. I, I think the fireplace smell has gone down. Uh, it was starting to get to me, too. No, it was just... Uh, I was just eating more of the owl salad. In the attic? No, it, it, it's, it's too much to explain. Uh, I'm going to start ending this now. I was going to play that... Uh, man who wasn't their record as an ending, so I think we're good. Why why was I supposed to wait? I have a final poem. You mean one of the ones we took out? It's already getting... No. You don't know about this one. Uh, A Halloween poem? It's related. Related to Halloween? In your pocket. To that! What? I gave it to you, and you put it in your pocket. The the poem? No, you... Your you, shirt the, pocket. Oh, the owl cutout. It, there's nothing on this. It's up here. In your head? All up here. Are you okay? I, I'm playing the record. In the hollow tree, in the old gray tower, the spectral owl doth dwell. Dull, hated, despised in the sunshine hour, but at dusk he's abroad and well. Not a bird of the forest air mates with him, all mock him outright by day. But at night, when the woods grow still and dim, the boldest will shrink away. Oh, when the night falls and roosts the fowl, then, then is the reign of the horned owl, and the owl hath a bride who is fond and bold and loveth the woods deep gloom and with eyes like the shine of the moonstone cold she awaiteth her ghastly groom not a feather she moves not a carol she sings she waits in her tree so still But when her heart heareth his flapping wings, she hoots out her welcome shrill. Oh, when the moon shines and the dogs do howl, then, then is the joy of the horned owl. Mourn not for the owl nor his gloomy plight, the owl hath his share of good. If a prisoner he be in the broad daylight, he is lord in the dark green wood. 
No lonely the bird, nor his ghastly mate, they are each on to each a pride. Thrice fonder, perhaps, since a stranger dark fate hath rent them from all beside. So when the night falls and dogs do howl, sing ho for the rain of a horned owl. Sing ho for the rain of a horned owl. Sing ho for the rain of the horned owl. Sing ho for the rain of the horned owl. <laughs> are you are you doing? What is with you? What is with you? What happened to you? What was in the owl salad?